Heavenly Father, we glorify your holy name. We thank you that we are the recipients of salvation for your name's sake, even as we see in your scriptures that salvation belongs to our God. And so it is that we belong to you. Lord, and we thank you that you have declared ownership over us, and we now are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. And Father, though our commitment to you is binding, it's a commitment that is based on the deepest expression of love that mankind can ever and will ever experience. A love so deep, a love so broad, that was shed for us in the blood of Christ Inasmuch as you, dear Jesus Christ, first loved us, we love you. And we thank you now that this bond is so secure. And our relationship based on the sovereign work of God Almighty, fulfilled in time by the incarnate Son, is so strong and so secure that neither height nor depth nor principality, power, any weapon fashioned by man or by a devil in hell can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We celebrate the security that we have found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We think about the citadel of salvation that Psalm 32 reminded us of last week, where in you we are preserved, we find safety and refuge. And as these thoughts overflood our souls this morning, we are filled with the sense of worship and awe, Lord, that causes us to break forth in unity and song, declaring in gladness, shouts of praise and rejoicing that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, our righteousness. And now this morning, as we open your Holy Scriptures again, I pray that you would draw our attention to another facet of your beauty therein contained, that we might boldly proclaim you, Lord, with more in our arsenal to evangelize this wicked world with the light shining, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and also that our spirits might be lifted out of any quagmire of sin and depression so that we might be reminded that we have only good things to look forward to in Jesus Christ our Lord when our life is hid in Him. Lord, we're thanking You for this opportunity. And may our affections, Lord, correspond with the glory we've received in our salvation. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a privilege to open the Scriptures again today. Two places I'd like you to open with me and I'll announce them first and then give you a title and an introduction for this morning's message. The uh, first section will be the one we opened with in worship this morning in Matthew chapter 12. The second, I should say, but prior to reading from that section, I'd like to read the original words that are re. That are given to us, declared to us again in Matthew's gospel. And those original words appear in Isaiah chapter 42. So Isaiah 42 and Matthew 12. The title for this morning's message is Isaiah's Outline in Matthew. Isaiah's Outline in Matthew. This prophecy, these four verses in Isaiah 42 that we'll read in due course, provide an outline for some of what Matthew records and how. We see the 
gospel taking shape. I mentioned to you that there's five great discourses in Matthew. We've covered the first two at length in this series. But there's also information in between within the narrative that is the story of Jesus' work and ministry. Well, the Gospels are recorded in such a way that specific events are chosen by the writer to highlight specific aspects about Jesus and who He was and what He did and how that relates to the greater body of Scripture and our salvation. And it's not incidental, it's not coincidental what events the authors chose to record. But what I've chosen to look for in Matthew is answers to the question, why did Matthew choose to highlight this miracle? Why did Matthew choose to draw our attention to this proclamation of Jesus? And I think in this morning's message, we have one answer to that question. Matthew recorded, in between especially, Discourse 2 and 3 in these events, he recorded uh, things, signs that Jesus did, miracles that came from the power of His hand, and also things that were declared to the Pharisees, to the people who were listening, to those He was preaching the kingdom to. He recorded them for the purpose of drawing to our attention fulfillment of greater Scripture. How was Matthew 42, verses 1-4 through fulfilled in the work of Christ? We find exactly how these verses were fulfilled as we read the Gospel of Matthew. So with that introduction, let's read Isaiah 42, verses 1-4. through The great prophet records these words about a glorious future that will be revealed when the Messiah steps foot onto the landscape of history. And he says in verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till He has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for His law. We'll read a little further. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols." I am the Lord, that is my name. Again, verse 8 of Matthew, I'm sorry, Isaiah 42. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. We see here in these first four verses and the four following a declaration and the sovereign, glorious, authoritative context in which it is given. God declares through the mouth of the prophet that He will send His servant. 
He will send the suffering servant, the lamb that will be slain, the one who would give his life as a ransom for many, the one who would seek and save that which was lost. And he will uphold him. He will be his chosen one. His soul will delight in him and so on. And the character of his ministry is given in these beautiful poetic pictures that talk about careful how Christ will be careful not to break a bruised reed or even to quench a faintly burning wick. But then, next to these tender pictures of His mercy, compassion, and loving kindness that are revealed in Jesus Christ to those who are called His lost sheep and called into the sheepfold, is this strong and authoritative declaration that this will be accomplished by the same power who, in verse 5, created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and the Spirit to those who walk in it. And it goes on, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant to the people and so on, this emphatic language. And then finally we find in verse 8, what undergirds this. The ultimate purpose for God's redemptive plan is that my name and my glory would be upheld. I am the Lord, that is my name, says the Lord, and my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God is the author of salvation. As the scriptures say, salvation belongs to the Lord. And when Jesus Christ revealed the way of salvation, He declared it exclusively found in Himself. Because the ultimate glory of God manifest in this redemptive plan was something that He jealously guarded so only His name would be praised. Another way of saying there is no hope, no salvation, no healing from brokenness, no joy that floods the soul wearied by the throes of life, Nothing outside of salvation in Jesus Christ that can give any legitimate smile to the face of a mere mortal or hope for tomorrow or grace for the future or the promise of an eternal life of hope, peace, rest, joy in the ever after. So that's the Isaiah context, 42, 1 through 8. Now turn over with me to Matthew chapter 12. As we find this outline in Isaiah, especially those first four verses, is picked up in this gospel and declared to be fulfilled in Jesus. Verse 16 of Matthew 12 we read, or 15, I'll start there. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there and followed, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. And then in verse 17, we find the reason why this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. This comes right after Jesus had healed a man of a withered hand on the Sabbath. 
declaring His power to heal and His Lordship over the Sabbath. And it comes right before a deliverance of a man who is oppressed by demons, who is both blind and mute, to whom was received again his ability to speak and to see. In this section, Matthew 12, 18 through 21, we find a record of a prophecy that had been written centuries earlier that is not an isolated prophecy just stuck in here as a by the way while Matthew is recording his gospel. But indeed, I think we find as we consider it in a little more detail and apply it a little more broadly to the context of Matthew, we find that this prophecy is a central outline and it's expounded in context in Matthew's record of the works of Jesus Christ. Isaiah's appearance here, his words appearing in Matthew 12, identifies, I think, a key to Matthew's structure in his gospel record. We find in this prophecy clues that connect the Old and the New Testaments, the Old Covenant accounts of the Messiah and the New Testament record of Jesus walking on the, on the earth. But more than that, we find an outline for Matthew's account of Jesus' ministry in between these great discourses. There is here glorious evidence of the narrative, imperative continuity of Matthew's gospel. That term narrative, imperative, continuity is a term that we referred to in a previous message. And it simply means this. In the story of where Jesus went, the characters that surrounded, the events that took place around the time when He was walking the earth and preaching the kingdom, the story of the events and His works and also the record of his teaching exists side by side, not as just a journalistic chronicle or the way you'd write a news story. Simply, these are the facts. But it's more, it's intricate, and it's deeper. There's a continuity between the two. When Jesus does something and speaks something, the two reinforce one another. And we know from the book of John that if, all the, if the record of all of Jesus' works were recorded in one book, at the time the Gospels were written, John surmised that there wouldn't be enough paper in all the world to contain the works. So we find that it's not just the quantity uh, that's bound for us in these books, but there's a quality to it as well where the specific instances that are recorded correlate with the doctrine that Jesus is teaching in such a way as to give us a weighty picture of redemption and one of the most glorious tasks in Bible study is asking ourselves how that is true in these different sections of Scripture. We've asked that question before in Matthew, and now we're asking it again. And here in this section, I propose to you that these four verses, 18 through 21, provide for us a key that unlocks some of the glories of Matthew's, God, of Matthew's work and record of what Jesus has done. There's perhaps 10 isolated phrases we could uh, identify and attach to Matthew, but I'd like to focus on just five. The second five are the ones that we'll consider at length today. But in introduction, consider the following. In verse 18, we just take that one word, that one word behold, and think about it for just a moment. Behold. That word denotes an announcement or a, pro a proclamation. 
a drawing of the attention of the audience to something that is of utmost importance that they need to hear. What does that remind you of in the Gospels? When the behold comes from the mouth of the angels at the announcement of Jesus' birth, unto you is born this day a child who is born. You will find him, Luke tells us, that the angels were recorded in heavenlies declaring behold to the shepherds that the servant had come. That Jesus Christ was born as a baby to a virgin lying in the manger, perhaps just miles away from where they were tending sheep. So the Father's divine announcement is wrapped up in that word, behold. Secondly, we find this term, my servant, which is weighty in and of itself. I'm sure uh, several messages could be devoted to the use of the term servant or suffering servant, especially in the context of Isaiah's gospel. When Isaiah talks about a servant who would come, he's prophesying of one who would serve others in ways that had not been accomplished up until that point. While the priests of their day were servants of the people, they could never ultimately accomplish the atonement for the sin that was absolutely essential and necessary for people to be reconciled to Jesus Christ or to our almighty and holy heavenly Father. But there was one who would come, a servant, whose very life would be laid down. And this servant would serve his people as both their prophet, their priest, their king, and their sacrifice. And this was one whom the heavenly Father had chosen. We see that first phrase, be, first phrase, behold, identifying for us that there's a divine announcement from the heavenlies that history is being made in God's perfect timing and atonement as well for all who would be called into His sheepfold. Secondly, we see servant, that the character of Christ's sacrificial work is identified in that term. Thirdly, we, we see when the when Isaiah uses the phrase, whom I have chosen, that we are to realize that it's the sovereignty of God infinitely surpassing the imagination, the plans, the expectations of man in this whole ordeal. That is, Jesus Christ was one whom God had chosen and uniquely so. Whoever man would choose would be fundamentally different and ultimately and infinitely a short of what would be a sufficient sacrifice for his sins. We're reminded of the context here even politically where the people, many of them missed Jesus Christ himself because whom they would choose was something and someone different than whom God would choose. He was not a political Messiah in the sense that he was there to incite a revolution to overthrow Rome, but indeed he was a spiritual Messiah who would defeat the ultimate and last enemy sin and death itself and ransom his people by his own blood. Fourthly, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. And the richness becomes, reaches this point of absolutely overflowing in just one verse. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen and then my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. And in Matthew's gospel, we're reminded of the audible affirmation that we talked about in a recent message called Heaven's Loudspeaker 
at Jesus' baptism. That audible affirmation where Father God's voice echoes from the heavens, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. That moment was prophesied, was prophesied in Isaiah, was recorded in Matthew's Gospel. That moment was repeated at the Mount of Transfiguration, and John records it repeated a third time, where the audible voice from heaven affirms the Son that He was sent for a purpose that heaven had planned from before time began. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son at the Mount of Transfiguration. Listen to Him. Or when Jesus reveals the way that he would die and John from the heavens has heard the voice, I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again. When we see these words recorded in Matthew's gospel, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, it speaks to the incarnation of the word made flesh, of the second person of the Trinity arriving and the audible affirmation of the heavenly Father echoing in the ears of even some listening, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then fifthly, Again, just an introduction, some of these phrases. Again, in verse 18, we read, I will put my spirit upon him. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And when we hear this phrase, I will put my spirit upon him, what are we reminded of? Perhaps Matthew chapter 3 comes to your mind, where the baptism of Jesus Christ and the events that we've already touched on records an additional an additional. Inter- interruption into the normal course of things, the normal course of events when the Holy Spirit descends like a dove and lands on Jesus. And there we have the visible evidence of this Scripture fulfilled in Jesus' redemptive work, God the Father sending His Holy Spirit upon Jesus at His baptism. And we have this triune affirmation of this moment in history that tells the reader that the Godhead in the economy of redemption, that is the relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and how they interact in their roles in redemption is unfolding and being fulfilled before us before our very eyes and ears as we read in this gospel account the amazing proclamation of Isaiah fulfilled in Matthew's record here. And that leads me to, the, to five more key prophetic phrases expounded in Matthew, and that'll be the heading for the remainder of the message this morning. Five key prophetic phrases expounded in Matthew. We've touched on five briefly, but as we continue to read, we come to this final phrase in verse 18. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. One key prophetic phrase that provides an outline for Matthew's gospel and is expounded on in the context is this truth that Jesus Christ will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. What exactly does that mean and how did that unfold before us when Jesus was here on the earth? Well, first of all, I would remind you of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Turn back there for a moment, if you will. Jesus arrives on the scene in His first recorded sermon in in the length and form that we have 
in Matthew. Matthew's Gospel is in, again, chapters 5 through 7, come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount. In verses 17, actually we can back up to 13 and follow through to 17 and maybe a few more verses, we find Jesus declaring these things. He says to those listening in, namely His disciples, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So there's two pictures there that remind us that we as emissaries of Jesus Christ, inasmuch as we are His disciples, are called to bring a proclamation and have an effect on the world, to bring the news of the kingdom from Jesus to the earth, to carry forward as an ambassador of the gospel the good news that He has come. Those two pictures are salt and light. Salt shines, I'm, I'm sorry, light shines, and salt preserves and flavors. Light provides direction and clarity. Light reveals a truth, a path, and a way. And Jesus Himself proclaimed what that truth and way were, especially as He says in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, and we've commented on the weight of that phrase, Jesus is reserving for Himself alongside Father God law-making or law-giving authority. I say to you, every other prophet that has appeared on the scene until now was speaking on behalf of God. Now Jesus appears on the scene and He's speaking as God. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And he goes on to explain and apply the law, raising the plumb line of righteousness so clear that the holiness of God returns to the consciousness of those who have eyes to see and ears to hear as he reveals it to them and judges every sinner falling short of the glory of God. How will Jesus proclaim justice to the Gentiles? Well, He will proclaim the law as fulfilled in Him. And as He lived His sinless life, He not only declared God's righteousness and truth, but He provided the way for that righteousness to be credited to our account. So now as we go forward and as we declare that Jesus Christ has come, that, he, that God the Father requires perfect holiness, we add to that revelation of His holiness the revelation of reconciliation in Jesus Christ our Lord. That through Jesus Christ, you can be lawful because He has provided the sacrifice for your sin. You will be born again if you believe, confess your sin and believe on His name and are transformed from the inside out. And so we see Matthew recording how the gospel goes to the Gentiles and how the proclamation of justice is now 
brought globally. Jesus says again in Matthew chapter 10 in his second discourse, he gives authority and direction to his disciples to do as he has done. He called to him his 12 disciples in verse 1, gave them authority over unclean spirits, they cast them out, and to heal every disease and affliction. And these 12 Jesus sent out, verse 5, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What message were they to proclaim? Well, he had given it to them in the Sermon on the Mount, so that presumably, and the rest of his righteous dictates, they would bring forward, in this case, to the Jews. But the message would go farther than that. And at the end of the gospel, we find the Great Commission extending to Judea, to Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And there we find, in these examples at least, and there's many more incidents where Jesus himself brings the gospel to an unlikely Gentile, we find the fulfillment of uh, Isaiah's words that Jesus Christ will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. We found it first in the first discourse, and we mentioned something in the second. In summary, perhaps we could say this claim, or say this truth. From now on, after Jesus had arrived on the scene and declared the message of the kingdom of God, from now on, this message, the kingdom of God, is understood to be expressly and actively declared. The universality of the covenant is to be emphasized to everyone and for everyone, and to be broadcast the world over. No longer limited to illusions, types and shadows, encrypted in prophecies of old, and treasured by a small, ethnically separate people, but now the apostolic announcement through those that Jesus commissioned to carry His words forward, and the echo of that word in our lips is fulfilling these very words here, that Jesus Christ came to and in fact did proclaim justice to the Gentiles. I was listening to some accounts of how Christ's disciples are still, even today, endeavoring to be obedient to this task. One of the most oppressive regimes on the globe today, and it usually comes up as number one most dangerous place to be a Christian in all the globe is the nation of North Korea. North Korea is a very strange and dark place. And the government is just about as repressive as you could possibly imagine. To illustrate the degree, let me give you one example. If you are in North, living in North Korea, and if it were to come to the attention of the officials that the neighbors next door to you or one house over on either side were believers, you yourself would automatically go to jail. No questions asked, you know, no uh, trial, uh, nothing like that. In other words, everyone who is found to be a Christian immediately goes to the concentration camps barring a miracle where they give the rest of their life to work and service of the state and slave labor, but not only them, but their neighbors on both sides. So when a Christian, conceivably when a Christian is found out in that culture, five families, without question, immediately go to jail. I'm here to tell you that you can try to stamp out 
the salt and light effects of the church of Jesus Christ with every tool of man-made power at your disposal, and it will ultimately be ineffective. There's a message and a proclamation going to that Gentile region, as it were, even today. It comes in the forms and shapes and sizes that might surprise you. There are individuals within North Korea who give themselves to memorizing a whole book of Scripture. They keep it in their heart because they can't hold it in their hand legally. And in their tradition, the church of Jesus Christ has somehow survived through unique and creative means to still be salt and light in that dark and arguably the most repressive government in all the world. What does this tell us? This tells us that Jesus Christ is Lord. And there is no darkness so dark that if He does not determine to enter, He will not send some way, some means to interrupt that darkness with the truth that justice and righteousness and salvation are upheld and fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the only way of salvation. Children have heard about the gospel without even knowing it. Their parents give them sometimes the same ten pieces of advice over and over. And they come to find when the Holy Spirit uses that means later in life that they had been taught the Ten Commandments. Somebody might enter their life who knows something of the book of Isaiah, for instance, and by a chance meeting, that would be a wrong description, but you know what I mean, God arranging a meeting for them to meet another Christian. All of a sudden, the gospel is proclaimed once again. Recently, a book was written called The Generations. About a generation, I can't remember, three or so, I got this from a podcast, and I was listening to this testimony. Three generations of Christians in North Korea, and they eventually defected and told their story. A man was married to a wife in this family for a long time, I think 15 years, without being able to share the gospel, at least he didn't feel the freedom to do so yet. One day his wife got deathly ill. He gave her these instructions. He said, walk outside, put your two hands together, look to the sky and say, make me well. She thought he was crazy. She was an ethics teacher in the school of Kim Il-sung or whatever, the glorious revolutionary who was worshipped as a god. And so her job was to declare that there is no truth except for this dictator, communist Marxist dictator, who invented this whole scheme and ideology for them to worship and buy, buy, and consume their whole life. That was, well, she thought her husband was crazy, but you know what? She did what he said. She stepped outside. She put her two hands together. She looked to the sky. She said, make me well, and instantly she was healed. I share this with you simply to give glory to the Lord and to declare to you that even today, by these examples, the words of Isaiah are being fulfilled in the darkest corners and in the darkest hour of human existence. Jesus Christ is still and will, so long as he tarries this earth, to rem- so long as he suffers this earth to remain, proclaim justice to the Gentiles. 
From now on, the kingdom of God is to be expressly and actively declared, and the universality of the covenant is to be emphasized, no longer limited to a one group of people or illusions or types and shadows, but boldly proclaimed in Jesus Christ our Lord. And that apostolic announcement is to permeate the globe and to echo that fulfillment has come in Jesus Christ, the only Messiah. And this is a great and powerful vision for missions. And I just wanted to emphasize by those illustrations in our time and by the illustrations in Matthew itself that these promises are the basis of redemption that was planned and purposed in the almighty sovereign mind of God all the way back in the Old Testament and indeed before time began. But they were fulfilled when Jesus walked the earth and they are being fulfilled today. Key prophetic phrases expounded on in Matthew. Number one, he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Number two, he will not quarrel or cry aloud. In verse 19, we read of Jesus, these interesting and perhaps a little mysterious words, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. What could this mean? Well, we read in the book of Matthew and all the Gospels that there were encounters and conflict between the rulers of the day and Jesus Christ every time He turned around, almost. Just in two, a few verses previous, we read, after He had commanded this man, stretch out your hand, the man stretched it out and was restored, was made healthy like the other. In verse 14, the kind of response... It engendered in the Pharisees, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus was aware of this, we're told in verse 15. He knew the hearts of these religious elite and this leadership conspiracy who put their heads together to destroy him. Later he calls him in verse 34, a brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. So this is just to illustrate that when the Scriptures say Jesus will not quarrel or cry aloud, it doesn't mean to say that He won't pick a fight, if you will, with false authority claims of the day. You remember in John's Gospel when Jesus went into the temple and He turned over the tables of the money changers and aided by a whip drove them out of that environment and of that context because of another prophecy which declared that my Father's house will be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. Jesus was not afraid to quarrel. He was not afraid to cry aloud. He was not afraid to raise His voice in the streets. So when we read of this, it, it causes us or might inspire us to ask the question, what exactly does Isaiah and Matthew mean in this regard when it says He will not quarrel or cry aloud? nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. To help us answer that question, turn over with me to chapter 10, and we'll read verses 40 through 42, which is the close of the second discourse. Jesus gives these instructions after he has just commanded his disciples to take up their cross and to follow him. And if you do not do it, do as much you are not worthy of him. I'll just read those verses, verse 38 and 39. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
He goes on, verse 40, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. In these verses we see Jesus declaring not just what we are to say, but how we are to bring that message. He was a suffering servant who gave his life as a ransom for many. And ultimately, he didn't fight back in the way that a political revolutionary would be expected to when he was charged and crucified. And so the way, the primary means by which God has ordained that his gospel be dispersed in the world today is not through revolution. A revolution the way man sees it, where sword and propaganda are employed to coerce and convince man humanistically to change his mind. No, we are to bring the message of Jesus Christ and then whoever, and to do so in the sacrificial, life-denying cross-bearing way that Jesus has done. So when we present ourselves and the message of grace through Jesus Christ to others, if someone receives us, they are receiving the message of the suffering servant. They are receiving the message of Jesus Christ Himself. They ought to receive the message because it was given as a prophet gives a message. Not their own convincing words, not their own coercive means, but the truth declared from ages of old, now manifestly revealed in time. And when we declare Jesus Christ revealed, that is what the Holy Spirit uses to convince people of their sin, to convict them of the same, and to draw them to the truth. Our power is not in advertising schemes. It is not in the sword. Jesus said, he who lives by the sword will die by the same. Our power is not in gaining a majority in a national election. Although any one of these things might be attractive, means that the world would use to disseminate their cause, their agenda, Jesus Christ and his truth is promoted in a different way. He doesn't cry aloud in the streets the way a revolutionary would and say, throw off the bonds and rise up the mob and overthrow and with one voice we will declare ourselves to be unified in our revolt against this particular power and so on. You see, during this time there were zealot movements who were looking for the perfect charismatic leader who they could rally behind and rout the Romans with. And Jesus, and Jesus truly let them down when he revealed that the way the gospel would be spread was through a different means. And his servants would do so not by taking lives, but by laying down their life. He says, the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And again, that this is a noble cause insofar as he shares whoever gives even um, the lit or whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will no, be, by no means lose his reward. So Jesus communicates to us his method of gospel dispersion. It's by regeneration 
not by revolution, that his kingdom will come and his will will be done on this earth and in people's hearts as it is in heaven. Let me qualify this by saying, this is not to say that there isn't an ultimate reckoning at the judgment seat and at that time the sword of God's ultimate justice isn't brought to bear and brought down against everyone who did not confess his name. Not at all. This is just to say that by God's grace, in the time that He has long-suffering for this earth, He has ordained that that time of the great white throne judgment be put off for a season of harvesting. And when we go out to harvest, it's with this heart and attitude. We go, we go with the authority of the Word of God. We do so as a person made righteous, testifying to God's work in us, and we do so as a disciple of the one who did not, even though he could have easily rallied a whole movement around him and overthrown the powers that be, but instead of that, he didn't quarrel or cry aloud, and nor did he raise his voice in the streets the way man would like to see things accomplished. So in the second discourse, we see an example of how this verse is fulfilled in the way the gospel is to be, uh, the way the gospel is to be shared, and the power that it contains to change someone's life. If you remember a few messages back, we talked about chains, gospel chains, chain reactions, if you will, of cause and effect relationships within the kingdom of God. We find in Romans eight twenty-eight through thirty that first of all, the primary causal effect why anyone comes to Christ is the foreknowledge of God. And then based on that is his predestination and then calling and then justification and then glorification. So that we find when God sees fit to accomplish something, he does so sovereignly and predestines it for his purpose. He calls people to not act with their own unilateral authority, but to declare the things that he has already spoken. And through that means, his Holy Spirit reveals truth to the heart of an unbeliever, and he is justified by a miraculous work of regeneration and finally glorified on that day when he is raised up and he is resurrected to live in heaven forever. And this is the chain reaction of God's cause and effect relationship in which we are to follow Christ in when we share the gospel. It's a sovereign revelation. In chapter 11, verses 25 and following, we read, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal it. To him, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And in those words, we find a glorious fulfillment of verse 19, where he does not quarrel and cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. But instead, they hear his voice in the inward parts, in the heart. 
They hear the calling, the sovereign call of God, tugging them, drawing them, irresistibly so, to the good graces, by the gracious will of the Heavenly Father, to salvation provided in His Son. Finally, there's an immediate application of this point. He will not quarrel or cry aloud. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed Him, and He healed them and ordered them not to make Him known. There's a curious, repeated command that Jesus gives His followers from time to time in the Gospels. He says, don't tell anybody, in so many words after a miracle, for instance, what just happened to you. Just keep it quiet, at least the implication being for a while. And in this case, he ordered them not to make him known. What was Jesus forbidding? Well, certainly not the Great Commission. He had just told the disciples in chapter 10 to broadcast the truth of the kingdom. What was he forbidding? He was forbidding the quarreling and the crying aloud and the voice crying in the streets that would bring in the wrong way this news. Perhaps another point to emphasize in this is that because of the way the gospel goes forward, no man, (coughs) no mechanism, and no means ultimately gets the glory. We ought to see from the testimony of the gospels a clear path for how to make Christ's name known. We're not to quarrel or cry aloud in the sense that man would like to hear or would consider convincing to his mere mind. But instead, through what the Bible also declares as the foolishness of preaching, we are simply to preach the immutable Word of God. And though the Greeks seek for wisdom and the Jews want a sign, when we deny them both those things and give them just the Word of God, we are being obedient to our Heavenly Father and to His Son. And we are following Jesus' command to not make Him known in a way that would rabble-rouse or incite revolutionary tactics or rely on mechanisms and means of man, the mob popularity or the mob psychology, psychology, the rumblings of revolt or trust publicity stunts or, you know, uh, crazy and intricate advertising schemes and all of those other things that otherwise capture the attention of man. The only thing that ultimately captures the attention of man to proclaim truth to his soul is the Holy Spirit of God. No quarreling, crying, or voice in the streets save that of the proclaimed Word of God is ordained to be effective to that end. And so we see Isaiah's glorious and amazing prophecies being fulfilled in the way Jesus taught and the way we are commanded to teach. Uh, Point three, he will not break. That is, he will not break a bruised reed and a smoldering wick he will not quench. We continue to read in verse 20, this truth declared about Jesus Christ and the character of his ministry. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick He will not quench until He brings justice to victory. I'm reminded again in the greater context of Matthew that Matthew shows that this was fulfilled by the demographic, if you will, of those who listened and had ears to hear Jesus preaching. 
We're reminded in Matthew 5 that he declared, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Before that, in the context, we see that there are many who followed him, but they were not the religious elite. They were not the self-important and self-acclaimed. They were not those who relied on themselves and their own strength or the constructs of men for salvation. They were those that were oppressed with disease and pa- diseases and pains, oppressed with demons, epileptics, paralytics, those who recognized their depravity of body and soul. This and these are the bruised reeds and the smoldering wicks that instead of breaking when their fragile and vulnerable state, Jesus healed by a word of His power. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You could almost substitute, blessed are those who are like a bruised reed, and blessed are those who are like a wick, a smoldering wick, with the flame of faith barely alive, hanging on to just a a window or a crack in the window of revelation. Jesus says of the poor in spirit, blessed are they. They are the ones who receive the kingdom of heaven. Again, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so it goes, the meek, the hungry, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and yes, even the persecuted. They are the ones who the world sees as a bruised reed and a smoldering wick that is good for nothing and is so fragile it is of no use to anyone, weak, desperate, destitute, for want of salvation and for lack of hope at the end of their rope and their experience having no place to put their hope and their joy and expectations except in the words of a man who told me something I've never heard, who healed me of a disease that doctors could not address, who set me free of demons that controlled my every thought and action, who showed me the path to eternal life, who gave me a reason to believe that there is heaven eternal in the power of His hand, who fed me with the bread of life, who gave me hope, who brought back my son, my daughter, from the dead. These were the bruised reeds and smoldering wicks that Jesus was careful not to stamp out and not to quench. But we see in Matthew that not only was he careful to preserve them, but indeed he healed them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The objects of attention and affection in the Gospel of Matthew are striking. They are not the ones who would have been judged most likely to hear and to recognize the Messiah revealed. In Matthew 12, verse 19, we see an idea of what they look like in poetic language. But later on in verses 22 and following, we see what they're like in reality. When this demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? We hear what they were like when we read of the man with the withered hand, 
who like a lost sheep was healed on the Sabbath by the good shepherd. Stretch out your hand, he said. And the man stretched it out and was restored, healthy like the other. And, the, and so it goes again and again in the gospel record of Matthew, how Jesus reached out to those who had his ear, and he expressed his compassion to those who needed it most of all and who recognized their need. We all need Jesus Christ and are hopelessly lost in ourselves, but the proud are not exalted. Pride, indeed, is the destruction of a man. It's the humble, the meek, the lowly, the destitute, the afflicted, the broken, and the poor who are sovereignly prepared to hear the message of the kingdom. Now, conversely to that, Jesus addressed those who are self-righteous and self-acclaimed in vastly different terms. He says in verse 33 of Matthew 12, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. And then speaking, as to this, applying this principle to the Pharisees, he says in verse 34, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. <clears throat> for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And when we read that, it ought to draw our attention to the reality of the conditions that are ripe for salvation in the soul of the prospective hearer. And it ought to make us cry out for words that say, Woe is me! I am undone! I am a man of unclean lips! I am a sinner! I am among the destitute, the poor and the afflicted, the oppressed and the needy. And I throw myself on your mercy, dear Jesus Christ. Point number four. He brings justice to victory. These last two points I'll touch on briefly and perhaps we'll pick up on the next message. In verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. In the messianic governing policies of Jesus Christ, we find in this phrase, he brings justice to victory, that one is never sacrificed at the expense of another. That is, that Jesus Christ is victorious, but he does not Pronounce victory over sin at the expense of justice. And so he gives his own life to satisfy the justice of the almighty God and also to declare victory over the sin that would otherwise send his elect to hell. And so it is conversely as well where Jesus Christ, in the interest of justice, his victory and his lordship is never threatened. Jesus Christ will reign victoriously and His justice will be upheld to the nth degree and there will never be a time ultimately where either one are allowed to be compromised, unanswerable before the judgment seat of God and before the court of glory. <clears throat> now when we see this, this policy in Jesus Christ explained of Him in Isaiah reminded in Matthew's record 
of how often Jesus encountered the authorities of the day, and we just read one. And one, escape, uh, one of those encounters when he faced the Pharisees. And it has, and we're reminded in these accounts of the inescapable reality of Christ's sovereign rule, not, o- not only over his own and individuals, but over whole nations. We're reminded in the context of Matthew's greater gospel of the social consequences for, of, for derelict authorities. That is, people groups, nations, and cities who deny that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. It's amazing to see in the testimony of the Messiah revealed in Jesus Christ that he not only reaches tenderly and compassionately into the soul of an individual, but he also declares his rule and lordship over whole peoples. We see in Matthew chapter 10, for instance, verse 14, If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. And this speaking to the authority that he has granted, that he has given, delegated to his disciples when they share the gospel out in the culture. Now the question would certainly come to their mind immediately, what if that house or town does not receive the message? Jesus says, truly I say to you in verse 15, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. He goes on later to say, he uses examples, these typical examples from judgments of the Old Testament and cities that came under the wrath of God for rejecting truth, he uses them as examples again. When he declares in chapter 11, verse 20, he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Cherozin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? you You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So the authority that Jesus Christ exercises in His ministry extends over cities and peoples and culture. In verse 38 of Matthew chapter 12, And some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. He answered and said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. No sign will be given it except a sign, the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. What are the missional, if you will, the missionary implications of the authority of Jesus Christ delegated to His 
disciples as we declare that He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Well, they are such that when we go forth declaring the truth, it is serious if people reject it. Once a city has become aware of the gospel preached, whether it's on the radio station, the street corner, or someone testifying before a court or rule of authority, they now stand accountable to the words that they have heard. Now, it is right for us to continue to preach the gospel so long as the Lord tarries with a wicked generation and pray that He would be merciful to convict and to change their hearts. But in so doing, let us never forget that it is not optional and it is not to be dismissed or taken cavalier when the gospel goes in one ear and is out the other. When people come in contact with the truth, they now are responsible to the Lord of glory for what they have heard. And if they double down in their apostasy, and if their heart only grows harder, and whether that darkness eclipses a whole town, a people, or a generation, it is serious. And people need to know it is serious. We don't go out there presenting one option for a better life among many good ideas. There is only one way. And when we declare Jesus Christ in His Lordship, if it is rejected, then there is a mark of judgment that remains on that people. That doesn't mean God will rain brimstone necessarily tomorrow, but He may. And there comes a time when His long-suffering reaches a limit, and a wicked nation, and even as our nation comes to mind and trending so more by the day, if you read our headlines as a measure, there comes a time where God's justice will be vindicated. And His victory will be declared over a people. And we need to remember that one is never sacrificed for the other. And that there is a day of judgment. Jesus said, on that day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. I think we'll close on this point, but I want to give to you one quick illustration. This was a letter to the editor in our local paper that my wife passed to me on the way to Wednesday night uh, discussion the other day, and so we ended up discussing it. I want to read these couple paragraphs to you to demonstrate to you the foolishness of the world in regard to our calling of, as a people, as disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the way, more often than not, the message of the gospel is taken or considered. Two things this uh, letter to the editor speaks of in our local paper. Two things we avoid speaking of with others is politics and religion. Both are often irrational articles of faith and fantasy instead of fact and reason. Recently, a Christian U.S. missionary was murdered in Benghazi, Libya, while on what he said was a God-inspired mission. So why do some feel it's okay for them to go to Muslim countries loyal to Muhammad and try to preach and push Christianity and loyalty to Jesus? At best, it's condescending and insulting. At worst, it's dangerous. Missionaries stay home with those of like mind. If you truly have any message of value, they will come to you. If no one comes, maybe the message doesn't have so much value as missionaries assume. That is an attitude that reflects an absolute rebellion against the truth claims of Scripture 
and the beauty of salvation that we hold as a treasure, not because there's anything meritorious in us, but only because we are privileged to receive it by the Holy Spirit's granting us the faith and grace to believe. But to a world that we step into to declare these truths, it's nothing but foolishness. But someone who's wired that way, this attitude that says Christianity is just a, it's just a mythical claim of religion, a crutch to deal with the reality of life among many, for someone who stands opposed to the king of kings like that, that is a very serious place to be. For there will come a day of reckoning when one who have evidences an attitude like that will have to answer to the Lord. So let us pray and be faithful. Let us recognize that if we step out into a world typified by that kind of attitude, we will be in a place where we will likely receive persecution, and perhaps more so in the days that are approaching. But when we find ourselves under pressure to give in or to step back, to compromise or to be discouraged under the pressure of declaring Jesus Christ as Lord, we, have, we need look no further for encouragement than the testimony of Scripture, which tells us that Jesus Christ Himself gave Himself as a ransom for many. He came as a servant. He laid His life down. He was pleased to proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And He did so in such a way that for those whose hearts were soft to it, they received salvation. And He rules and reigns over His church and all nations at this very moment, and we can place our faith in Him that our vindication and ultimately His glory will be upheld on the final day. In the meantime, may we be found faithful to understand and apply the message of old fulfilled in Jesus Christ and then commissioned to us to share. Let's close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, I thank You for the glorious privilege of being a mouthpiece for you. Father, there's opportunities we're praying for this week that you have prepared for some of us who are committed, for instance, to March for Life in Brainerd on Wednesday. Lord, an, an invitation has been extended to me to speak at the courthouse, Lord, in the civil sphere, as it were, in our small community. Lord, the message that you have given me to bring is not one that's easy for a sinner to hear. Indeed, it spells death for him unless he repents. But Father, we know that it is exactly what this world needs. And we would be in sin to withhold it from their ears. I pray, Father, for boldness and clarity and truth. I pray for a faith, Lord, that surpasses the daily challenges and trials that we deal with. I pray for a heart like yours. And I pray for a devotion to the Word of God, Lord to be cultivated in the hearts of all believers here so that when we go forward with the message of Jesus Christ, in both word and deed, we reflect, Lord, the great commission commandment to bring the whole counsel of God to teach and instruct nations, Lord, and disciple them and, and to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray upon your soon return, or the day you call us home, that we would be found faithful doing these things, Lord. And if the conflict escalates in the meantime, please remind us that you are sovereign in that as well. And sometimes, Lord, the greatest awakenings the world has ever known come on the heels of the greatest sacrifices 
that you, Lord, ultimately, but others in laying down their lives have paid. We thank you for these truths, and we thank you for this time we've had together to consider your word. Now, we pray that you would now write it on the tables of our hearts so we would not soon forget. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.